welcome. Thank you for joining us on a special edition of Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions, and we'll do our best to answer them live. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business. He's a regular contributor to ZDNet, Harvard Business Review. And often I see him on Yahoo Finance, Fox Business, CNN. He's all over the place. In my humble opinion, he's one of the best uh, futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot, Vala. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Vala Ashar. He's one of the top people to follow. If you are a CEO, CMO, and CIO, if you're trying to be inspired on Twitter, big social media following, uh, <laughs> author himself. I'm going to have to snag a copy of his book for the next show. And more importantly, you know, he's on Business Press as well and a keynote speaker. So if you've ever seen Vala speak, it is amazing. It is thoughtful and it is inspiring. But when we think about futurists, uh, and when at least when I think about futurists, I think about our next guest and our special guest today. So Paul, I'll turn it to you to introductions. Who do we have? Uh, it's our honor and privilege to have John Hagel as our special edition guest. John has more than 40 years of experience uh, as management consultant, author, speaker, and entrepreneur. He's helped companies improve their performance by effectively applying new generation of technologies to reshape business strategy. John currently serves as co-chair of Silicon Valley-based Deloitte Center for the Edge, which conducts original research into emerging business opportunities that should be on the CEO's agenda, but are not yet on their agenda. Uh, before joining Deloitte, John was an independent consultant and author. From 1984 to 2000, he was a principal at McKinsey, uh, where he was a leader of their strategy practice. John is a founder of two Silicon Valley startups, He's the author, uh, he's the author uh, of a series of best-selling books, including his most recent book, The Power of Pull. Uh, John's authored seven, seven books. He has won two awards from Harvard Business Review for the best article in their publication. Uh, John's also faculty at Singularity University, and he's a fantastic follow on Twitter, a must-follow on Twitter at J-H-A-G-E-L. Welcome, John, to the Shrub TV. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Great having you. John, we are Thanks. so excited to have you here. Um, I think back 10 years ago, you had kicked off the first Constellation Connected Enterprise event, right? And at the time, when we get to put our way back there, um, you were still talking about the importance of trust. And that is woven in throughout everything you talk about, whether it's through learning, whether it's through you know, the future, whether it's through what, what's going on. And, and I want to take us back to that moment where you were looking at the world, you're seeing the digitalization of companies, you're seeing the shift, and you talk talked about this concept called infomediaries um, and, and, and explain what infomediaries were when you thought about it and how it's evolved today, mostly because I feel like we're living it, right? And, and the concept of trust and infomediaries, because I think it's a very important universal concept that has happened uh, and a lot of people still don't know it's happened. <laughs> a lot more to come. Uh, I, I originally came up with the concept in a book that I wrote more than 20 years ago uh, called net worth. And uh, that was where I first introduced the concept of an infomediary. And for me, the, the notion was 
a trusted third party that can help us get more value from data about ourselves. And that that was the uh, increasing unmet need on the part of people. And this was driven in part by the growth of the internet and uh, digital networks of all types. And the, the notion, um, I think still is, we have an interesting paradox where the technology that we're creating and exponentially improving uh, continues to be able to capture more and more data about everyone. Uh, but at the same time, a trust uh, of all of us is eroding in the institutions that are capturing the data. And so I think there's an interesting uh, challenge there because I, when I talk to executives, they, they all talk about things, the technologies like artificial intelligence, IoT, all that. And, you know, I, I, I at some point just stop the conversation and say, you know, artificial intelligence is extremely stupid without data. If it doesn't have data, it's useless. And nobody's talking about the data. Well, the, the assumption is the data's there. We've got an avalanche of data. We're inundated with data. But the point I try to make is recognize, look at the surveys. They're pretty uniform throughout the world. Trust is eroding in all of our institutions. And if you don't trust somebody, you're much less willing to share data about yourself with them. So my belief is the ones who are going to ultimately prevail in this world and create the most value are the ones who manage to rebuild trust with customers and become in effect. I mean, I think the extreme is, is what I call the trusted advisor or the infomediary. It's someone who actually, I trust very deeply that, you know, they, they've demonstrated that they're really committed to me and I'm willing to share data with them, all data, whatever data there is about me because I trust they're gonna do whatever they can to create more value for me from that data. And that's an unmet need. Again, I think most of us still are very uh, concerned with grow erosion of trust. And so I, I see it as an untapped opportunity that's still, still waiting to be met. Sure. And, sure. and it's very, very important, right? When we think about the future of AI, for example, right? If I don't trust that system on the other end, um, then it's going to be really a, a gatekeeping mechanism as to what data is provided. And, and it creates this endless cycle of, like, do we trust that data? Can we trust that data? Can we trust that, you know, that bot? Is, what's going on over here? Is that a deep fake? Right? I mean, and it's just an endless pit of like just uncertainty and ambiguity. Well, and the opportunity is to turn that vicious cycle into a virtuous cycle where the more I can demonstrate to you tangible value in return for the data that you've provided me, the more I'm going to trust you, the more willing I'm going to be to share data with you. I mean, in that book I wrote 20 years ago, it was very clear, at, even at, at that point, that yes, there are some privacy extremists who just want to be invisible and don't want anybody to know anything about themselves. But most of us are very willing to share data about ourselves if we feel we're gonna get real value in return. And we'll share more and more of it. And you get that virtuous cycle. The more value you give to me, the more data I'm gonna to provide to you, which gives you an opportunity to give more value back to me. That's huge. And again, I, I just feel that companies still have not yet tapped into that opportunity. 
Right, right. No, absolutely. I think all three of us agree that there is a trust deficit um, and it's growing. Uh, you talk about and you've written about, you know, rebuilding trust in, in our institutions as an imperative. And, and you say to do that, to successfully build trust in institutions, uh, we need to address trust holistically. And uh, so in terms of holistically, you've written about a pyramid of trust and you emphasize right away that trust is about people. And in the pyramid at the foundation, you have humility. Uh, the founder of my company talks about having a beginner's mindset, which you can't have unless you have humility. <laughs> uh, um, and then you talk about integrity uh, layer. And then above that, you talk about commitment. Yeah. And you end with excitement because, you know, it's hard to get sustainable commitment unless you're passionate and you love and you find joy in what you do. So can you talk a little bit about this pyramid of trust, because I think it's a fascinating way to capture a holistic view of what it means for institutions and individuals to establish trust. Um, yeah, it's, it's driven by the research we've done around what we call the big shift, which is the, the forces that are reshaping the global economy. We believe we're in the early stages of a profound transformation. But Part, part of the issue, as we begin to see accelerating pace of change and the current crisis, uh, <laughs> pandemic crisis, <laughs> illustrates how rapidly things can change, um, the, the nature of trust shifts. I mean, there's a big shift in trust. I, I oversimplify, but in the past, trust was about skill. Do you have the right credentials and training to do what you say you're going to do? Right. And if you do, I trust you. Today, as we recognize that whatever skills you had are going to become obsolete at an accelerating rate, the, the focus shifts from skill to will. Do you have the will, the commitment to actually do what's right for me? And that's where the trust pyramid came into, into being was the notion of, okay, how do we assess will? And, and again, it starts with humility. If you just, part of the reason I think trust is eroding in all our institutions is that the, the mark of a strong leader in our traditional institutions is someone who has the answer to all the questions. No matter what question, you can count on the leader to have an answer. Well, guess what? If you tell me you have the answer to every question, I know there are two options. One is you have no clue how the world is changing, or number two, you're lying. But in either case, I don't trust you. <laughs> so increasingly, the, the basis of trust, the foundation of trust is this notion of humility, recognition. The world is changing. I don't have all the answers. It's going to be a challenge to, to come up with the right answers. Yeah, it was Jeff, I think it's Jack Ma who said there are no experts for tomorrow. Do, do you get the sense that given the just uh, the seismic uh, events of just 2020, uh, obviously, the pandemic and 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 uh, you know you still have the climate crisis. You still have you know there's now you know a, a, a race crisis, a, a, a economic crisis with 40 million out of work, a health crisis. So we're facing all of this, and these are accelerating and changing. We had uh, 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 the chief uh, uh, technology officer at Accenture, Paul Darby, on our show a month or so ago, and he said. At Accenture, they believe that uh, we have witnessed digital cultural transformation uh, uh, three years worth in just the last three months. So what are your thoughts about experts of tomorrow? And is, is it harder for us to be able to predict 
new business models and new innovation opportunities, given all the changes that we witnessed just this year. No, absolutely. I think, again, the, the label of expert becomes a bit suspect in a world of, of accelerating change. Is, you know, expertise is about skills and things that you acquired in the past. And do you know what's really going on today? And more importantly, what's likely to happen in the future? And I think that's the question that that really is on the table and is part of, again, the erosion of trust is a sense that these experts um, really are struggling themselves. And, and I'm not sure that I can trust them again, unless they, with that pyramid of trust, are, are demonstrating humility, integrity, commitment, and most importantly, I think excitement, that they're really excited about the challenge. They're not just dreading it or regretting it. No, <laughs> this is exciting. It's an opportunity to get to another level of impact. And that's, I think... You know, you, you, you do say something interesting in that blog, and, and the piece that really stuck with me was the inverted pyramid and, and the point of fact that those areas at the top seem to be the most important areas or the areas where you kind of said something about winners and losers are going to be based on those who can actually demonstrate their capability at those top layers. Can you elaborate a little bit more? Because I think, you know, people, are, people understand there's a foundation that's required that's built on the trust, um, but they're assuming that the pyramid goes in the traditional <laughs> model, uh, but you're, you're making a case that there is, there is a delineation between those who succeed and those who fail. Yeah, I, you know, it, it ties in everything I, all the work I do is connected in one form or another. So it's hard to slice in and, and take a particular piece. But I, I think here the notion is one of the things that I've come to believe is as a result of this work on the big shift is that increasingly we have to focus on the emotions that are driving people. Um, not just, you know, I, I wrote a blog called, uh, urging a shift from mindset. Everybody's talking about shifting mindset. How do we shift mindset? To me, the bigger question is how do we shift heart set? How do we shift the emotions that are driving us and that ultimately shape our mindset? And so I think that, um, again, it, it ties back to the inverted pyramid that as you go up the pyramid, it's more around the emotions that are, are really driving your, your behaviors and and actions and i think people are increasingly going to focus on what are the emotions versus you know what credential does that person have from what school um, yeah so, so speaking of emotions uh, i think you've talked about you know the growth of fear as a dominant emotion around the world right now um yeah just turn on the news for a 10 seconds and <laughs> you're, you're most likely are going to be scared about what you what you what you're witnessing and and so so you've talked about the growing need to find and cultivate the passion of an explorer in order to achieve uh, more of your potential so when you advise ceos when you're talking to you know companies that are looking for not just growth but relevance what what do you tell leaders about helping us move from fear to hope and excitement. What do they need to do? Other than read John Hagel's blogs. <laughs> Other than that. Start there and then everything will take care of itself. <laughs> no, no, I, I think that, um, you know, my first piece of advice again is, is look inward and go to the level of emotions because I think one of the challenges for CEOs or institutional leaders is 
again, the mark of a strong leader is someone who is confident and can guarantee they're going to get whatever needs to be done done versus looking inside and saying, no, I'm afraid. And by the way, I find that when I can build trust with, with leaders of large institutions around the world, I very quickly hear the fear that they're experiencing. They're under more and more pressure. The life cycle of a leader is shrinking in time. Uh, there are a lot of reasons to be afraid. It's, it's rational. I mean, it's, it's, there are reasons to be afraid. Um, but first of all, recognize that you're afraid, because if you don't recognize it, you're going to deny it and, and uh, do things that are not very productive. Um, but then it's this notion of finding a passion. One of the things that we did, again, it's all connected, this notion of the big shift. We, we saw that the, the paradox of the big shift is on the one side, it's creating exponentially expanding opportunity. We can create so much more value with far less resource and far more quickly than was ever imaginable 20 years ago. At the same time, it's creating mounting performance pressure on all of us as individuals and as institutions. And the challenge in question is how do we move from that mounting performance pressure to exponentially expanding opportunity? And one of the things that we did as part of our research was we went to environments where you could find sustained extreme performance improvement. And we went to arenas that were pretty far removed from traditional business, extreme sports, big wave surfing, extreme skiing, uh, online war games where you wanna talk about pressure. If you make the wrong move, you're gonna die. <laughs> and we, what, what are the common elements in all those environments? You know, and one, the people. One, no, <laughs> one, one common element was all the participants were driven by a very specific form of passion that we ended up calling the passion of the explorer. But the interesting thing about these people is they had fear. There's no question. I mean, they, they were facing really scary situations, but they, because of their passion, they were able to overcome their fear and get to higher and higher levels of impact. And I, we've come to the view that that is critical to really moving from mounting pressure to expanding opportunity. It's finding that passion, cultivating it, drawing it out. And I'll just say, I'm sorry if I go on too long, but the, the three elements that, again, everybody uses passion pretty loosely, so it has many different meanings. Um, for us, the passion of the explorer has three elements. One is you've got a long-term commitment to a specific domain and making an increasing impact in that domain. So you're not just going to be in that area. You're going to make more and more impact. That's your commitment. Second is what we call a questing disposition, which is when, when you're confronted with an unexpected challenge, the reaction of people with this kind of passion is excitement. Wow. <laughs> Never saw that. This is an opportunity to get to that next level of impact. So it's that questing disposition. Third element is a connecting disposition, which is your reaction when confronted with these unexpected challenges is who else can I connect with who could help me to get to a better answer faster? And so they're very connected, constantly reaching out and asking for help. And that's a very powerful driver of learning, right? Excitement about unexpected challenges, 
willingness and desire to connect to others and commitment to getting more and more impact, you're going to learn very quickly if you have that kind of passion. That is, that is timeless advice. I mean, every time I go back to your books, I mean, they are timeless uh, in terms of what's happening, in terms of the theory, in terms of the leadership, in terms of the foundation. They're almost first principles uh, for succeeding in an ever-changing world. And, and when we think about that, um, you know, one of the elements of this ever-changing world is, is automation. Right, where automation and AI are going. Any thoughts about that? Because we get that a lot of questions about that in terms of the future of the work. What happens in this post-pandemic environment? Uh, what does that mean for you know the, these these types of you know situations? Does, does anything change, or what's same? What's similar? What's different? Yeah, I'll just say one more like thing. To, sorry, okay. I'd, like add, I'd like to add to that. It, it, as you speak to the automation and impact of AI, I know you've done extensive work in terms of institutional models shifting from scalable efficiency to scalable learning. So I'd love to know, as you respond to Ray, uh, in terms of your view on AI and automation, tie that so back interconnected. to- Yeah, I think so, I think so. I, 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 but I'd love to, to confirm that from, from, from John. <laughs> and, um, before I go into those two, I'll just add one more point about passion, which is the interesting thing to me is if you look at companies and institutions today, I mean, the big thing that every, all institutions are focused on now is worker engagement. Do we have engaged workers? Tell me how many institutions you know are actively measuring and trying to cultivate passion in the workforce. Very different. And I, I think, again, just a comment on, on engagement, again, very different meanings. Basically, engagement means, uh, do you like the work you do? Do you like the people you work for? Do you respect the company you work for? <laughs> That's so an engagement. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's none of that, like, I want to be here. I love being here. I need to be here. <laughs> well, and, and more importantly, it's what's the reaction of an engaged worker when confronted with the message that we need to change everything? What? We're going to change? <laughs> no. <laughs> I like what I'm doing. I like the people I'm working with. Don't bother me. Versus the passionate worker who's pounding the table saying, we need to change. We got to get to higher and higher levels of impact. It's a fundamentally different orientation and heart set that I think is really critical. So anyway, I'll, I'll just, but I think it's an interesting question, why no institutions are focused on passion of the workforce. So anyway, um, automation. <laughs> How many hours do we have? Uh, I'll, I'll say that, again, you'll find out that I tend to oversimplify, uh, generalize, but I think with, with truth. Uh, when I talk to, to senior executives in the privacy of their office about automation, I, I, they only have two questions. How quickly can I automate and how many jobs can I eliminate? Mm -hmm. Those are the two questions. And to, to Val's question, uh, observation, in my mind, that is the manifestation of the scalable efficiency mindset. It's all about cutting costs. How quickly can I cut costs, right? Versus our, my view is this is an opportunity to really redefine the work of the workers. Because again, generalization, most work today in most large institutions are tightly specified, highly standardized routine tasks. Guess what? Machines can do that so much better. And let them take that 
But before you just let go of all the workers to cut costs, how about refocusing them and saying your job is now that you don't have to do all those routine tasks, your job is to address unseen problems and opportunities to create more value wherever you are in the organization. You know, you could be a janitor in a, in a facility. You could be a factory worker. Everywhere, address unseen problems and opportunities to create more value. Now you have the, the time and the freedom to do that. When we were consumed with routine tasks, we didn't even have the time to see the tasks, uh, see the challenges and opportunities, much less address them. Now we can unleash that. And again, it all ties together because if you're passionate, <laughs> you're driven to see those unseen problems and opportunities to create more value and you'll do it. But I think it, it again, ties back to this whole notion that we, we struggle because the big shift is so complex and so many dimensions to it, but we do, one way we have of representing the big shift is institutional models. The institutional models that drove success and wealth creation for the past century, and I think, again, generalization, but around the world, are driven by scalable efficiency. The key is to get more and more efficient at scale. That's the key to success. Increasingly... Mindset? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no. Well, so the increasingly, our, our view is the institutional models in a rapidly changing world, if... It's how you, first of all, how you, how did you get efficiency? And it was by tightly specifying, highly standardizing all the tasks. That becomes actually less and less efficient. So by the way, that model is increasingly challenged. The new model that is necessary in a rapidly changing world is what we call scalable learning. But, and I, I hasten to say here that the, when we talk about learning, we're not talking about learning in training programs, which is sharing existing knowledge. The learning that's most powerful and valuable in a rapidly changing world is the creation of new knowledge in the work environment through action, addressing unseen problems and opportunities and reflecting and getting to higher and higher levels of impact. That's learning and that can be done at scale, needs to be done, but by the way, I view these two models as in fundamental conflict with each other. I, I talk to a lot of executives who say, oh, we'll do both, scalable efficiency and scalable work. And I say, wait, wait a minute. What's the one message you give to all your workers in the scalable efficiency world? Failure is not an option. You will deliver as forecast, as predicted, efficiently and reliably. Well, guess what? I want to make sure I, I, uh, I'm thinking about this the right way, because yeah. you, wrote a, you wrote a very famous, uh, one of my favorite HBR, Harvard Business Review articles, where you talked about silos. You said for, for centuries, people thought about capturing resources, let's call it res knowledge as a resource, capturing knowledge, resources, protecting those resources, and try to extract as much value as you can from those resources. So yep. the lifeblood was consuming resources. Um, and, and when I think about scalable learning, I'm thinking that the lifeblood is not based on principles of silo consumption, but rather principles of flow. Because what you want is the flow of knowledge and insights and actionable uh, you know, data-driven events to be 
to, to, to be realized so that you can co-create value at the speed of need. Given speed and personalization and intelligence seems to be the currencies that matter most in this distributed digital world that suddenly turned, went from you know, zero to 60 in, in three seconds in March or February, at least in the US. It's the shift from silo mentality, protect, consume, extract, to flow of resources in order to have that healthy ecosystem and, and, and the environment you need to, to, to cultivate learning. Am I thinking about this the right way? Totally. It's another way we have of representing the big shift is moving from a world of stocks to a world of flows. And it's exactly what you were talking about. In the, in the traditional model, it's all about stocks of knowledge, proprietary knowledge, protect it, efficiently extract value. In a rapidly changing world, it's all about how do you participate in a greater and more diverse set of knowledge flows so you can learn faster to address the rapidly evolving changes in the world. And awesome. that's awesome. a huge shift. Bridging, bridging some of those concepts together, right? At the beginning, uh, you were talking about how the fact that we've never been able to do more with less. The amount of scale we have to be able to make something happen is, is, is pretty incredible. Uh, and, and it seems like those are in the hands of fewer and fewer people to be able to leverage that, whether it's capital flows or technology or really, you know, that leverage in terms of scale. Right. And, and we've seen these shifts in winner takes all markets. We've seen these shifts in terms of, you know, the quadrillions of money that's sitting on the sidelines in, in terms of investing. The, the question I have for you is, can we move away from a culture of scarcity, which is what is happening here when you're talking about efficiency and operations to a culture of abundance, uh, which will at least, at least free us out in terms of thinking about hope and, and building new models and, and in the shift. And, and I remember this because I, I believe you and I were sitting somewhere in a farm on Melbourne or was it a seminary? I can't remember where it was. <laughs> you know, where there's some brainstorming That's session a story going on. I want more details. I want more details. Uh, yeah, in the next special edition of uh, Disrupt TV. Uh, but, 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 that, but that notion of abundance seems to be lost. And, and I don't know if you thought a little bit about it or, or about how we recapture that. And, and I see it tied back to the trust of institutions as well um, as, as kind of a leveling or, or a field that actually promotes that level of that's, I don't want to say it's inclusive. I think it's equal opportunity or a level of hope, but it's somewhere in that lines. But, but I, I'm curious to your thoughts about that as well. No, it's a really important point. I, I think that, uh, again, I'll go back to mounting performance pressure. You know, yes. we all as human beings have a natural human reaction to mounting pressure. One is we tend to shrink our time horizons. You know, can't afford to think about the future, just got to get through today. As we shrink our time horizons, we begin to adopt a fixed view of the world. The resources that we have are what are given today. There's no more. The only question is who's going to get them, you or me. So it becomes a win-lose kind of mindset rather than the abundance mindset. It's a scarcity mindset versus an abundance mindset. Mm -hmm. And in that kind of world, if it's just about you know, who's going to get the resources that we have today, you, you lose trust. You know, you may seem like a really nice person, but at the end of the day, I know only one of us is going to get these resources and it's going to be me. And so, again, it becomes a very vicious, dysfunctional cycle. The more you lose trust, the more you shorten your time horizons, the more pressure you feel, and it 
it, it goes into this cycle. And so I think, again, it's really recognizing the pressure and the fear that it's creating and starting there with how, how are we going to move people from fear to hope and excitement? The reason I brought that up is because, you know, it, it could apply anywhere from U.S. versus China relationships or to higher education admissions or to opportunities for funding and startups. Right. I mean, and this this notion of culture of abundance seems to be missing. It, it, it really seems like winner takes all very binary. And, and, and I think you're right. It, it comes back to those institutions, which is something very, very important. So we're almost out of time and there's so much to discuss. I think Vala definitely has another question. And I've got another one that's kind of related to your future in terms of the next book you're writing. So I'll save that for the end. I'll let Vala, uh, Vala yeah, what do you so have? And, and then I I'd also do want to talk about Atari, but that's another story. Sure, sure. So. <laughs> Atari, ah, uh, to, um, yeah, this is my final question. I mean, so we, we talked about, you know, uh, perhaps a need to shift from pressure to passion. And also we talked about there are no experts about tomorrow, but I have to say if I wanted, if I was a CEO and I was building my agenda today in terms of my investment thesis and my cultural leadership process, the two folks that are on the video call with me now are the two I want to talk to. So I, I am sure, John, you've probably been more busy than you ever imagined because people want your expertise because there's so much uncertainty about the future. So my guess is you're giving more talks now than ever before. So my question is, how do you handle the pressure of digitally being accessible and available and connecting to so many? Uh, and that may be uh, you know, a mode that you're in for the remainder of certainly this calendar year. So advice to you know, other uh, trusted advisors and thought leaders and, and, and folks that are visionary in terms of how to cope with the pressure of the demand society has on your expertise right now. <laughs> Yoga, uh, you know, green tea. Breathe <laughs> um, <laughs> deeply. Green tea. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, again, it, it, it goes back to, to my notion of passion that, you really need to look inside and figure out what is it that excites you and motivates you and where you really want to have impact. And then use that as a filter to basically say, what requests am I going to respond to versus which ones am I just, do I just not have the time for? But if you don't do that, you get spread way too thin, you get stressed out, you get exhausted and it's, it's not a good, Good outcome. So well, I we, we appreciate you saying yes to yeah. us. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Thank, thank you for spending your time with us. Much yeah. appreciated. So, okay. So, hey, looking out, I, I know you're working on something new. You always have something in the back pocket. Uh, yeah. You have a new book, uh, a new yeah. conference uh, topic, things that you're headed towards. Oh, boy. Yeah. There's always something new. It's always about the questions versus the answers. Um, I, the, the, I'm, working on a new book. It'll be my eighth book. And wow. uh, it, it actually tackles some of the issues we've been talking about, which is the catalyst for the book is I say that my, my business career has been in business strategy. And I was always taught that if you have the right strategy, everything else takes care of itself. That's, that's it. Increasingly, I've come to believe it's less about strategy and it's more about psychology. And that if we don't understand the emotions that are driving us, wow. the best strategy just sits on a shelf somewhere. And so in that context, um, the, 
the trigger, a, a catalyst for the book as well was, and this was before COVID, and I think Val mentioned this earlier, was as I traveled around the world, I've been traveling for the past several years and was struck by the dominant emotion that I was encountering was fear uh, at all levels, highest levels, lowest, out in the community. And to me, again, it's understandable. There are reasons to be afraid, but on the other side, it's potentially very dangerous. So the whole book is about how do we move from fear to hope and excitement? Wow. What's the journey that we're all going to have to make? And what are the, the tools and ways we can uh, begin that journey? So my prediction right here, uh, another bestseller, John. I'm not, a, I'm not a futurist, but I'm going to play one. <laughs> That's, I love it. Psychology eats strategy for lunch. I love it. I love it. That's awesome. <laughs> I there you go. You got a book cover quote right there. It's on the back of the cover. <laughs> I can't wait to hear. No, that is awesome. No, John. Hey, thank you so much for spending your time and your morning with us. I'm sure everybody watching is, is going to appreciate the nuggets of wisdom. And but more importantly, um, really looking forward. Um, it was so wonderful being able to take a look from from the from the very very beginning of this term intermediaries to where we are today, talking about trust and and really the psychology of actually getting that passion and emotion. So thanks a lot so much for being on the show. And uh, you know, happy to have you on anytime. So thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. So much. Thank you. All right. Well, we're gonna put John in the green room, and we're gonna talk a little bit and get back. So, so yeah. What a I, I, that's forty minutes that just went by like this. Like, what happened? It felt like four minutes. And you know, the funny thing is, all along I'm thinking, oh my god, I want to tweak this. I want to tweak this. I want to tweak this. When I go back, I'm gonna, you know, we, we usually write a summary of the show via ZDNet. There were so many nuggets in that forty minutes. I mean, just ridiculously, ridiculously smart man. Uh, um, and and I, I often tweet uh, smart people use simple language. John has a tendency to just break things down <laughs> to in a way that I can actually you know share with my with my with my children, and I, and they would get it. So it's 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 it was a privilege to have him on the show. And speaking we got a great of show, from. We got a great comment from one of our allies, Doug Henschens. He's like, John is big on alliteration, rhyming, and pairs. He's amazing at it. It just happens. If you see his blog, check out the poem that's on there. I'll You're tell like, you, he Whoa. is. He, I mean, it's like, it's like a digital renaissance, artisan, man. Renaissance. Yeah, man. renaissance. Business, business poet. Um, so speaking of shows, as you know, this is a special edition. We, do, we often, you know, it was, this is episode 197. 99% uh, of our shows are on Friday. So this Friday, we'll have episode 198. And uh, I think we might be one or two shy of 600 interviews. I need to check. I believe we are 597. And uh, so on Friday's show, which is at 11 uh, a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Uh, Eastern uh, time, we have Nick Mahata, CEO of Gainsight. Nick is extraordinary. We have Sharon Venderein, um, and she's the founder and CEO at Parent Tested, Parent Approved, PTPA. And we have uh, return guest, Dr. Janice Presser, talking about team ability and the science of creating chemistry for high-performing teams. She's also an author and, uh, and uh, one, of our, one of our favorite guests coming back to Disrupt TV. So that's Friday. Ray, uh, closing remarks about this special edition and what, what's, what's in the future. I don't know. I can't wait till Friday. We'll see what happens. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so thanks everyone for being on the show. If it's usually Friday, it's Disrupt TV. And thanks for attending a special summer edition here with uh, John Hagel. So we are off. Take care, everyone. Bye, everyone. <laughs>